out there, it's very simple, low stress. Everyone's very kind. Yeah. That's what I noticed too in Park City. Yeah. People were really friendly. If you're in the South, it may be more common to you, but it's jarring to me. It's especially jarring when you come back and land in Newark Airport. You're listening to Experience This, a show about the emerging experience economy with your host, Tom Young. Hi, everybody. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Tom Young. I'm sitting here with Karen Baja. We have a special guest today, TJ Young. How you doing, TJ? Feeling like a special guest. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, uh, as has been custom with our uh, genre here in this podcast, we're talking about experiences and we try to talk to our team members when they come back from an interesting trip or experience. And we have Sean as our resident uh, globetrotter who's going to interesting places. But TJ just got back from a ski trip to Jackson Hole. Yeah, Jackson Hole for about five days. And uh, so we want to hear a little bit about that. Jackson Hole is one of the premier ski destinations out west. Did you have a lot of fun? What Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, working in technology was good to uh, get out and away from civilization. And you can't really get much more remote than that if you want to go skiing. Jackson is tucked away in between a few different um, state forests and reserves. Um, and I think the, the closest big cities, you know, over an hour away. So if, if you're in Jackson, you're in Jackson. Where, where did you fly into? They have an airport. Oh, wow. And somehow they have direct service from Newark on United. Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> it's not reliable. Yeah. So you fly into Jackson and then is it, are you are you close to where you need to be or is it a You fly into Jackson, long? the airport is in Grand Teton National Park. Okay. Which is the park ju- immediately south of Yellowstone National Park. Wow. Um, and cool. then if you land and you're, you're about 10 minutes from the town of Jackson, which is maybe, I don't know. 10 or 20 blocks. It's not that big of a town. Mm. Um, and then the ski resort. So we, it, we, the whole trip was meant to be a ski trip. Um, the premier resort is called Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, which is located in Teton Village, right up against the Grand Tetons. A lot of people will just fly into the airport and just drive five minutes to the Teton Village and just live the uh, ski, après ski life. Oh, yeah. And then not even going to Jackson to leave. Wow. <laughs> so you went with Cassidy and another couple? Yeah, with my girlfriend Cassidy and uh, six others. Oh, six. Uh, so it was about it was an eight person trip. Huh. Uh, four guys, four girls. And you got a big uh, Airbnb house or something like that. We looked at it, and the, if if you look at booking a trip to Jackson, you'll realize the first thing is everything's expensive, including lodging. So we mm-hmm. ended up just doing like a Marriott. We did look at like an Airbnb super deluxe suite for everybody, you know, hot tub included. Would have been like thousands <laughs> it wasn't feasible at all so people were a bit uh, uh pinching pennies there i was gonna ask because i i similar to park city it is quite pricey in jackson jackson right it's uh i would say it's new york city or worse for everything wow yeah drinks food so it's all high quality but you're, you're not going to be there saving money at all hmm. yeah so you everybody stayed in a, basically had their own each couple had their own hotel room yeah pretty yeah. much yeah and did you, uh, uh, so you got there, did you hang out all the time or did you like have meetups and book? Like we, we talk about when we talk about designing uh, trips with a lot of people about the notion of bookending the trip and then planning one or two events max a day and letting people do their own thing so you're not like commingled with eight people for five days and you're at each other's throat at the end of the 
Yeah, my, my personal uh, standpoint here in terms of optimizing the experience, if we're talking about that, uh, is not to plan too much. Like, I, If I go into somewhere with no plan, I get a bit anxious, but worse than that is trying to plan out every single minute so that you finish your trip and you're not really relaxed and you're almost exhausted more so yeah. from vacation and you show up back to work and you're just drained. Um, I intentionally said no to a couple things at the end, just to kind of chill, walk around town, take in the sights, no plan, wander around, right? So there's, there's definitely a balance there. But we did, so at five days, uh, half the trip was skiing. Mm-hmm. And we had two of the eight people were not skiers. So when they came in late, when they came in, we did other stuff, uh, other winter activities. So we did like a dog sled tour with Alaskan Huskies. They're trained to race the Iditarod. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was super cool. It was very, I don't know, it was very yeah. bizarre. You got to figure they, they got to do something when they're not in that race. It's once a year. It's pretty much the, this, this place exists. They rent them out to Jackson Hole. I think so. <laughs> the place exists to run these trips for tourists who want to pay. And uh, when they're not doing that, they're training the dogs to race in those marathons. So we got to meet, uh, we had maybe 15, 20 dogs in our sled. Wow. And you got to meet each one of them. How many people all... were on your sled? It was about f- uh, four people to uh, two sleds. And they all gave us roles. Talk about experience. They gave us like maybe a two-minute crash course on how to run the sled and how to steer and like use the brake. And they were like, all right, off. Are you holding on? And then we went. <laughs> we went. So, the do- <laughs> so two people are on a sled. Two on the front sled, two on the back sled. And how many dogs would pull one sled? So it's there's one sled, a rope, and then the sled in front. And then there's about maybe 14, 15 dogs pulling the whole thing in front. Wow. wow. They're all attached. Yeah. And <laughs> they, uh, is it moving? Uh, like, what's the speed? We were, so Iditarod goes, I think, about eight or nine miles an hour. It's not that fast because they have to cover, I think, a thousand miles is the Iditarod. So it's just, it's endurance, stamina. Uh, we were going about like 15, I think under 20. So it it doesn't say we weren't going crazy fast. I pictured us like flying, but after doing about 15 to 18, I was like, all right, anything, anything more than the average tourist is going to fall down and sue this place. So it was fun. Um, so you're standing up the whole time. You're standing up the whole time. Uh, there's, there's actually a couple areas in the sled that you can kind of tuck yourself in kind of under blankets and be pulled around. So that was probably my favorite part, just being pulled around by my friends. <laughs> and I timed it perfectly so that when we switched off and I was sitting in the blanket burrito, uh, it just happened to be before all the big inclines. They're all, they're all helping the dogs get up, and I'm just hanging back, <laughs> relaxing. Oh, wow. That sounds but like it's, a lot uh, of Yeah, the, you get to meet each of the dogs. They're small dogs if you've never seen them before. They're Alaskan Huskies. Mm-hmm. They weren't shy at all, and they, they get trained up um, very quickly because newborns will just get put into the sled team, and they don't really get told what to do. It's all follow. It's all follow because yeah. the dogs are they're the pack animal, so they'll have the best trained dogs up front. And they had I forgot all the all the codes they use. They had certain words, and they would say it, and the, all the dogs almost in unison would react, for, trained highly well. But they would just throw newborns in. They'd pick it up, and then it's just a cycle. It's very interesting. Wow. So, so we cool. have a Jackson Hole video playing in the studio in the yeah. loop here. Uh, were you here? Is this? So, yeah, this is the top of the mountain. So if you've never been to this place, it's a massive resort. Uh, if you're an East Coast skier or snowboarder, you probably know about Killington, the yep. Beast of the East. Yep. Uh, one of the bigger resorts out here. This is much bigger. Uh, I, I did two days of skiing. You couldn't conquer the whole place in two. What's the elevation uh, out here? This is uh, about 10,500 feet above sea level. Wow. 
pretty good. At base camp, you're at about I think six thousand something. So you're it's four thousand drop. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a whole bunch of lifts, gondolas. Um, the one that takes you to the top here, of what we're seeing is the peak, is a hundred person tram. They pack a hundred people all carrying your skis into a tram, and you go up four thousand feet to the very top of the mountain. And uh, the only uh, trails that are accessible from there are like black diamonds, so it's pretty intense. And so it looks like there's a pub here. Did you uh, while you were there? Did you have any beer? They serve at this particular one. They serve waffles, and uh, you know beers and stuff. But we were too excited to go down. There's restaurants for the, the, the whole, over the whole mountain, but this one in particular is known for it's like a waffle cabin at the very peak. So you so did you like ski down like halfway, stop at a pub and have a drink and then keep skiing? Yeah, it's it's such a big place that there's mid mountain lifts. There's um, like not like lodges, but just little uh, like lodge centers and restaurants throughout the mountain. So you can go to different mid peaks and just mm-hmm. stop and hang out. I mean, unless you have, you have pretty good stamina, you can't really go down without stopping. And the sights are all unbelievable. You, you catch yourself skiing and looking right to catch the view of the valley and the Tetons, and then you have to look back to make sure you're not going to fall off a cliff. <laughs> so it's you're bal- It's like a balancing act. And was there opera ski? There was opera ski. Because it's not a big thing in most parts of the U.S. I don't even but know what the hell that is. Opera ski is French for after skiing so oh. it's the whole i know what that is it's the yeah. whole <laughs> culture of and you know activities that follow a hard day of skiing so heavy drinking and heavy drinking yeah yeah <laughs> so this looks pretty wild I, I i've been to killington several times uh it's not it's not like this i mean there's some nice parts of killington but this looks pretty massive so it looks like people are just ready to topple down the edge of a mountain so did you uh uh, so you skied what three days when you were there out of the five? I did two of the three days that people went skiing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so and the looks, snow looks pretty cool. Was it good? It so yeah. East Coast skiing is known for you know icy, not very thick right. um, uh, trails, and because of that, uh, East Coast skis are like thinner, so yeah. we can carve up the ice. If if you rent skis out there, it's powder skiing, and they have. Um, you know they're not as thin, so like the tip of the your skis in the middle are kind of the same width, and mm. they're just fat, so you can kind of ride on top of the snow. Uh, when we were there, it wasn't as powdery, but it's 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 a whole different experience. Did I, you bring your own equipment then? I did. Yeah. So you brought East Coast skis to ski out west. Mine are kind of kind of in the middle. Yeah. So they can kind of ver. They're like all they're called all mountain skis, so yeah. they can fare well pretty well. Yeah. Well, it looks like a lot of fun. They so I mean, you can pull up any video on YouTube and see some of this, but this uh, every single part of the mountain, not every single park, because some of them are pretty treacherous, but you can go off trail and you can pretty much ski almost anywhere because the forested areas weren't very thick. So you could ski in between the trees and there were a lot of, it was very marked up. So the whole mountain was accessible and they kind of have suggested routes, Routes. Mm. but you can pretty much do the whole thing. So it's just, you, you make up your own adventure. Were you guys able to ski into downtown or was there a main street in Jackson Hole? So Jackson's kind of away from uh, the, the mountain, the mountain okay. but Teton Village is right up against it. So there's all there's like four seasons there. There's maybe four or five competing hotels. It's all ski on, ski off, right right up to the door. Oh, is really that where nice. you stayed? No, no, no. We stayed in Jackson. Okay, and then traveled to Teton Village. But yeah. if you want to do the full upgrade ski experience with you know, no driving, you ski up. You take off your skis, take five steps, and you're in a bar with a bunch of exhausted skiers, all just. Pounding IPAs. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. sounds like uh, what I'd like to do. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, it's it was heavy Upper East Upper East Keys gold, uh, culture. So, how was the downtown area of Jackson Hole, or was there one, or what? If the, a main street, I guess there was. Yeah, it's it's very touristy, but it's fun. I mean, you're it's it's a true front like frontier town. Mm. So a lot of cowboy paraphernalia, a lot of taxidermy, uh, yeah. just whiskey everywhere. Wyoming whiskey was the drink of choice. Every night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Were you guys able to get dinner reservations as a group or everyone kind of peeled off and did some of their own stuff? We did. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, it's, it could be pretty packed on a Friday or Saturday night, yeah. but we, you know, largely, um, you know, had our way. We know one person in the group had his birthday on Friday night. It just oh, happened nice. to be that way. So we did one big night out. Yeah. Yeah. That looks like a lot of fun. I've never skied out west. It looks great. I, I did ski in the Alps once and it was, had similar feel. This looks a little, the forest looks a little more Spartan. It looks more wide open. It's um, it, it, when you, the farther up you go, the more treacherous it becomes. Yeah. When you go to the peak, this resort is famous for one drop off. Um, I think it's Corbett's Couleur. I think it's what it's called. Uh, you can pretty. There's two options when you get to the peak. You can go left, which is what we did, to go down what's called Rendezvous Bowl. And if you've never skied a bowl before, it's pretty much, there's not one entry point and you ski down a path. Mm. You kind of ride along the ridge of, you know, the edge of a bowl and you choose where you want to enter and it kind of funnels you down to the center. So it's kind of like a half bowl. You pick your spot, no matter what, it's going to be steep and you just make your way to the bottom. If the other side, if you go right, it's a complete 90 degree ledge, a cliff in between two separated rocky peaks. And you can kind of just drop off there and go full 90 degrees or fly off. And it's a huge, huge drop. Experts only. It's, it was closed when I was there because there wasn't enough snow and there's rocks at the bottom. It's supposed to be one of the craziest drops at a U.S. resort. Yeah. Were there any? <laughs> I didn't even I, want to look over. I'm afraid to even talk about it. Were there any moguls? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were oh, a lot man. of moguls. A lot of natural moguls. <laughs> they, let, they let the mountain go. If, it's not, if you're not on a defined path, it's not groomed. And they'll call like natural moguls of form, not mm -hmm. the ones that are intentional bumps. Um, and you just kind of have to deal with it. And wow. the, the more more it snows, the more uneven it becomes. So it's very interesting. Oh, this looks wow. like a lot of fun. Yeah. that's th Those are thick trees, but um, a lot of spots have sp more sparse trees. You can carve it up. I didn't do that because I don't want a death sentence. So one of the things that we talk about, TJ, on, on, on the different episodes we have is within the defining good experiences is a social dynamic. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like the, the four couples, how well you know each other, how you travel well together, any interesting stories about what worked and didn't work? Yeah. I mean, so the four, the group was tied between the four guys and we all yeah. grew up together in town here in mm -hmm. uh, Branchburg, New Jersey. Um, we did a few, just the, just the guys at least we have done a few trips already together. So it's, we all know each other very well. I mean, we did one big trip, similar experience in terms of being remote. Well, we did a, uh, about a week and a half long trip to Iceland. Oh, nice. Where we just hung out in Reykjavik, rented a car, uh, went out to go hiking on glaciers, camping, just experience being in the middle of nowhere in a very uh, odd location, you know, volcanoes, glaciers, black black sand on the beach, just a completely otherworldly, otherworldly experience. Uh, and we've capped it off with an Amsterdam trip, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, but so we've done a few trips like this, and this is just the latest one. We want to, I mean, everyone liked it. Uh, I, I want to repeat this again. 
Uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, uh, one, one friend of mine, Chris, he was another person in the group. We actually went there last year to go hiking in Yellowstone, just the mm-hmm. two of us. And we liked it so much. And the locals told us to come back during winter to actually ski and not hike that we brought back this whole group of eight. So we kind of scoped it out and brought back our people. So yeah. definitely something you would do again. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, in terms of this social dynamic, I mean, if you're listening from the, you know, New Jersey, New York city, metro area, tri-state area, there's a certain kind of person that you're used to talking to out here. People are very direct. Um, they're not falsely polite to your face. Like they might be at least in the stereotype of, uh, the West coast or LA, um, out there it's very simple, low stress, Everyone's very kind. Yeah. That's what I noticed too in Park City. Yeah. People were really friendly. If you're in the South, it may be more common to you, but it's jarring to me. It's especially jarring when you come back and land in Newark Airport and then experience just the locals around there and the workers there. I have my own takes on Newark Airport, but it's just a completely different culture. Yeah. And people are happy. I think because it's simple, there really isn't that much to stress out about. So how about the, the, the restaurants and pubs and stuff like that? Uh, the the new term I learned, Opry Ski. Uh, how was that? Any any interesting things you saw out there? Do they have like lo- local brews and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, heavy whiskey culture. Um, a lot of beers too. We were right across the mm-hmm. street from a brew pub, Snake River Brewing. Just to plug that one, it's my favorite spot. That's also partially the. Did reason. you drink Rainier? Did you see that? That's like a local beer there. Rainier, no. Yeah, no. They had a lot of a lot of Snake River mm-hmm. stuff. That's a local brew pub there. Um, in terms of yeah, the opera ski culture, a lot of the places uh, are like rustic chic. So yes, you're, 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 yeah. you're dining or you're drinking in like these kind of log cabiny looking places. Uh, it, it, some of the streets actually look like your traditional, uh, you know, black and white frontier town cowboy movie, which is like your storefronts. You know, if you're a guy, guy with spurs is going to walk out at any moment. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's literally that kind of feeling. You're, you're in a frontier town. Um, but it, you know, you know, everyone is there to ski and it's noticeable difference between the morning crowd and then around 4 PM when everyone from the mountain finishes and those who are going to come to Jackson, come in and flood the streets. So everyone's kind of doing a similar thing. Mm. Everyone's there to do a similar thing. So when you see somebody, you know, they're traveling there, they're skiing, they're tired, they're going to go out and have a good time. Was it, did it feel crowded or could the, the city absorb the tourist or the town absorb the tourists? It was crowded. It wasn't too it, bad. It was, okay. it was pretty crowded, though. The mountain got bad in the afternoons. Mm. Um, but I, I think a lot of people stayed there. Uh, Jackson wasn't too bad, though. Yeah. So at the end of the trip, you had a little bit of a curveball thrown at you? Yeah. So uh, being in a remote location, you are subject to certain risks. Um, and being in a location where it snows a lot, the reason why we went out, also subject to certain risks. On our way out, I think about an hour before we were supposed to take out, uh, take off. Uh, got a notification from United saying that the flight was canceled. Uh, one of our friends got to the airport early and he was relaying back information from what was happening at the airport. They uh, announced that all flights were canceled that day and all flights were canceled the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not, so again, we're not near anything. There's a few towns with small airports near us, not near being like an hour away, but major airport, I think the Closest one was Salt Lake City, oh, nice. which is five hours away. And Jackson Airport is small. So you pull in, there's maybe two or three parking lots for like rental cars and people parking their own car. 
uh, we had a buddy there relaying back information. He said it quickly turned into like a Lord of the Flies scenario where people are yelling over each other, bribing the rental car agency desk and each other for rides to Salt Lake, rides to Denver. It was crazy. And very quickly, there were no more cars left. Wow. And we, you know, I was, we were arguing with the rental car agencies trying to get a good rate just to get a one-way car somewhere. And they're like, no, 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 it's, it's going to be a huge amount. What happens during these scenarios is, especially in a remote place, everyone rents the cars and they drive them away and, and it's one way. Yeah. So the airport's left with no, no rental cars. cars and they have you know four or five agencies there looking to run out. So it's a huge hassle for them to get cars back because everyone just escapes. And there's a whole mm -hmm. nature of escape, especially when a blizzard's coming in, which is why all of the flights were canceled. They're, they're supposed to get, you know, eight to 10, 15 inches of snow. So there's a bit of like haste there as well. So we, we had a pickup truck, like a Silverado with us. And our, I know we talked about strategy on the phone on where to go. We decided to go to Denver, which is a slightly longer drive, but we could get direct flights back to Newark. Mm. It's an eight hour drive. Oh, nice. And it's like from here to Canada, to Toronto. It's not, it's not short. When you're in that situation, you, you the airlines, they're not, they, they, they are not and cannot tell you the truth. Uh, so they, they, they tell you what they're going to tell you. You have to read between the lines and understand what's true. When you, when you're in that situation and it's lower to the flies, you need to get to a hub. Yeah. And Salt Lake City is a hub for Delta, but if you're on the United platform, if you're going to the Newark, you want to get to Denver, or, and then even. If you can't, you want to get anywhere to like Chicago or Houston or something like that. Make your way back. I, I used to travel quite a bit, and you know, they're, they're going to tell. And the people on the ground, they just don't know. But it's you just got to keep your options open. So getting to Denver has a lot of options. So how many of you guys were able to pack into the Silverado and? So two people drove to Salt Lake, and uh, four of us drove to Denver. Other, the other two had already left already the okay. day before. Um, so for, I, we had the keys to the Silverado and I said, I'm not going to give this up until <laughs> we get like a good rate or another car or something. And they tried to charge us like, I think they were going to charge us $1,500. Whoa. And we, we would just haggle with them down. We got them down a good considerable amount. And, but I kept the car was running outside. I did not take the keys out. We had someone to guard, stay by the car and guard it. Cause I didn't know what was happening, but we eventually left, got out of the storm. Um, but it took us about eight hours to get there. Wow. So then, was, then you were able to rebook right away or you had to wait in Denver? No, we rebooked. Okay, it, was, it was pretty pretty easy. They didn't charge you mm -hmm. anything, at least on United. But uh, it's eight hours and five or six of those are through absolutely nothing. You're driving through southwest Wyoming into the north of Colorado. There's an Indian reservation, uh, the Wind River Reservation. We passed through the whole thing. It's absolutely desolate. You pass through a few like small villages, but you are in the middle of nowhere. They have every now and then you'll pass like like an unattended uh, gas station. It's the the lone light on the highway, <laughs> and you could see storms coming from miles away. It was I mean talk about experience. It was very surreal. It felt like on a different planet, and we had this one light snowstorm come in, and it just we saw this whole thing envelop us. We could see the edges of the storm. And it went from like a spring day to a blizzard. We thought we might crash, and then it passed, and it was fine again. Oh, you, you're at the mercy of the elements out there. Yeah, you're coming off the, the basically the the Rockies, right? And you get into yeah to northern Colorado because 
you get to Fort Collins. You drove through there, I assume, Fort Collins. Yeah, drove yeah. through Fort Collins. Yeah, it's uh, you're on the other side of the Rockies, and you get really interesting weather. Well, it, it, it kind of carves up the clouds, right? Yeah. So it adjusts the way they move around. And right, right. It can surprise you because a storm can come in and kind of ric- almost ricochet mm-hmm. off the mountain range, and then it'll hit you. So it's very unpredictable. Wow. Yeah. Well, whenever you're at a B airport or a smaller airport and there's equipment problems, you just understand the airlines can't really do anything about that. So when you go to a hub, they have maintenance facilities and alternate aircraft to back it up. That's why you want to get to a hub. You just, if you're, you know, I had problems in over my years of traveling, and if you're in a smaller airport, the airline has to, uh, when they cancel a flight or there's a mechanical problem, they have to either move everybody to adjacent flights or the next flight or the next day or put you on other airlines, which they don't want to do, or bring in new equipment. All of that is multiple hours, and you're almost always better if you're in a B airport or a smaller airport when you, something like that happens. If you can't get on a, in a, an, another airline and willing to pay the money to do that because you won't be compensated, is to rent a car and drive and get, get out of Dodge. Wow. So. And then one thing we always ask everyone who's on the show with us is, how did you pack? So we ask that because we talk a lot about minimalism. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of minimalism. Uh, I think I packed one. I think I was on the lighter side of the group. I, you know, apart from bringing skis over, which is kind of a unique object, uh, I don't check a bag because of bad experiences where you know I don't trust the airlines. It's just <laughs> people, it's, it's, the systems aren't integrated, and no one's talking to each other. And I've had friends lose bags in Europe, which is just a whole hassle. I mean, you, you get your bag back a day later, and we're going to move on to the next city. Uh, so I don't, I, I have a bag that's, um, I think it's a Travel Pro suitcase, but it's um, certified for carry-on size, not just in the U.S., but for international, which mm-hmm. is even smaller. So no matter where I go, I use that and a backpack and nothing else. And then this, I had to check skis, but otherwise it would be just, just those two bags. You check skis and boots, right? Skis and boots, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like minimalists and, you know, the bag's exploding. I have to put yeah. my whole body weight on top before I can zip it up, uh, but it works. Yeah. yeah. So we have a trip coming up to uh, San Francisco with the, taking the whole team, and we're going to deal with the packing issues because we're going to have to check bags for that. And uh, some people are going to endeavor not to, and that's fine. That's their prerogative, but we're bringing a lot of equipment. Yeah. So uh, well, I think sometime today... Bart and uh, Jordan and I are going to take a look at the Pelican cases and try to pack up the mobile studio equipment. And so we're, we're probably bringing three suitcases of equipment uh, on this trip. So we're going to have to check, <coughs> check our bags and carry those on because you don't want that in check baggage. Yeah. So we'll have to carry, we bought Pelican cases that are carry-ons that are for protecting electronic equipment. So... I think Bart and Jordan and I will be the guinea pigs for check bags. So the way you do that, if you have to check bag, because I've had the experience of lost bags, is in your backpack, which is your other carry-on you can bring in, like a personal item, is put your small toiletry bag and uh, change of underwear, socks, that kind of stuff, so if you can get through 24 hours when you get there. But it's just part of traveling. There's no way around it. When you're doing connecting flights, that's really where it's dangerous. On check bags, make your your bag doesn't make the connection. Direct flights is usually pretty good. Just happened to uh, the two people I mentioned who left the resort early and missed the blizzard. 
Uh, they, you know, first of all, they were had a five-hour delay sitting in the plane waiting for, you know, just various maintenance. But when they got back to New York, they had to wait an extra, you know, thirty-six hours for their bags to come through on the next couple flights because they missed it. That happens all the time. Yeah. So, anyway, so again, you do the trip again. Absolutely. Great experience. It's uh, it's a great experience any season too. Uh, spring, summer, winter, fall. There's something there. If it's warm out and there's no snow, or endless hiking. Yeah, just watch out for the bears. So <laughs> that's a bad experience. The, the last question again, it gets back to the theme of minimalism and this whole the underlying DNA mm-hmm. for this podcast series around experience. Uh, doing these things are not it's not inexpensive, but people can make a choice on do they buy do they spend their money on stuff or spend their money on experiences and time things like that. So in that case, when you think about your disposable income, was that was this money well spent relative to buying stuff and would you recommend this to others if they can afford it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a saint, so at the end of the trip, I did buy a couple, uh, you know, coffee mugs and T-shirts, so just to, <laughs> you know, really enshrine the experience in an object. But the whole thing was an experience. You're, you're, you're uh, to show for the ski trip, I have a card that doesn't mean anything. It just meant that I was skiing for two days with friends. So the whole thing is just a memory. Uh, and just again, the added fact that we're in such a remote place, uh, it very. Very often, you lose your signal to your phone. It just adds to the whole notion of being here and being present as opposed to being elsewhere. It's just one of the reasons why I wanted to go back out there because you're hiking, you're seeing nature, you're skiing with friends. You're not connected back to New York. You're not connected back to wherever your home is. Uh, So it it made it that much better uh, with everyone kind of being very present and just doing various activities together. Yeah. It's a reoccurring theme. I think we were, that yeah. was brought up yesterday about the further you are away from home. Yeah, and at some level, I think what one of the things, Kieran, we want to start doing is exploring how do you uh, bring the concepts down to uh, more of the mi- micro level. It's, yeah. you know, these are big trips that take months in planning. Going to Jackson Hole, you went to Sundance Film Festival. Uh, we got a big trip coming up to San Francisco, or people go to Europe, or something like that. But the real question is, how do I turn a a weekend, a free weekend, where I might be doing something, and bring some of these concepts into day to day living? Versus, you know, not everybody can afford to do some of these trips we're talking about. They are quite exotic trips, but uh, people are spending their time, and they're choosing how to spend their time. And we want to use this podcast to explore some of these concepts so people can bring that into their day to day life. Yep. Great. Well, thanks, TJ. Thanks for coming out with yeah, us absolutely. Today. Thanks, All TJ. Right, thanks. See you guys. Hey, this is Karen Bajwa. Thanks for checking out the show today. If you like what you heard, head on over to our website, rumjog.com. If you happen to be in the New York or New Jersey area, come check out our meetup called Digital Disruption. We cover topics like you heard today with a live audience. Lastly, don't forget to follow us on social media using the handle at rumjog. Talk to you soon.